Well, I think um, David led us in such a helpful prayer for what we're about to do now, which is to listen to God's word together. It would seem to me to be silly for me to do as I normally do and pray again. So we'll take it that God has heard our prayers uh, as we look at the covenant of Abraham or the covenant with Abraham. Happened to, it's roughly the same distance before Jesus we are after, but I have no doubt that it's shaping and controlling your life today. Uh, God keeps the promises that he makes, and this is a ripper. I, um, I wonder if you think it's possible to have too much of a good thing. Um, I asked the people at 8 o'clock, and there were people who were nodding their heads, and there are other people quite vigorously going, no, it is not possible to have too much. But I remember the second time I went to uh, Bible college, theological college, I, was, um, I got really sick of too much of a good thing. Um, and that was three or four verses from the book of Genesis. Um, it, it just came up in every single course we did. You know, you'd be looking at the book of Galatians. They'd often take you back to this part of Genesis. You'd look at the, the theology of the New Testament or the theology of Luke or the theology of the Old Testament. And, and it was always back to these verses until finally in, in the second semester, we did a, a course that was going to be on, on the Bible's understanding of mission. And they, took, went, back, they went back to these verses. I could have screamed, no, enough. And the difficulty was we had decided to uh, lead in a course uh, for guys who just finished the HSC when we were doing exactly that. We, we were doing the sort of biblical overview back to these same three verses. And it really did... I've got over it, OK? Like you've had too much magnificent ice cream and you, you recover and you go back for more. But the verses are a significant part of the story of Abraham. We're going to look today really briefly. I mean, the, the story of Abraham goes for about you know, 15 or so chapters, and there's all sorts of wonderful and unusual parts of it. We're just going to look particularly at the significance of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. That is, has, it really is the thing that seems to shape the entire Bible as God works out his promises that he gave to Abraham. Um, there's a fellow called John Stott. Let's see if we can get his little quote up here. John Stott says this about these three or four verses I'll read in a minute. It may be truly said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament is an outworking of these promises. That's absolutely the case. Um, the, the verses are these ones. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. We're briefly introduced to Abraham in chapter 11 and his dad, and the sort of the journey they were on, and his wife, and we're told twice in one short statement that she couldn't have children. Um, and it's said in a way that's repeated so that you don't miss the significance and the tension this will put in the story. But chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, the Lord said to Abram, this is, this is the first time God interacts with Abram that we know of. It's not as if Abram is looking for God. He's not on the long search towards God. But out of the blue, God speaks to him. God initiates the contact and he says this, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. A little bit like the way Jesus meets people and says, come and follow me. Starts with a very simple one-off command. Leave your country, go to the land. Which land? The land I'll show you. He's not even told the, the destination. He said, I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. 
then listen to this. I want you to notice the words that get repeated. That's how the Bible will normally emphasise something. It will repeat it. So listen, listen to the words that get... Listen to what God says in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, it's very straightforward, isn't it, that the two words that get hammered and emphasised. Blessing, God wants to do good to Abraham and to do good through Abraham. We're all looking for blessing. We don't, may not use that word, but that's what we're looking for. We disagree amongst ourselves and worse, we disagree with God on how do you find blessing. Uh, God is saying here, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all nations. It's a big promise made to one human that God is still keeping and it's, this promise is being kept even here in Australia. And the other thing he says is, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, not we will, we will, we will, or you will, you will, you will. God starts this whole thing by saying, tell you what I'm going to do. He doesn't ask for Abraham's sort of permission even here. He simply announces what he will do. And so Abraham goes. In chapter 12, he gets caught up in a drought and heads off down to Egypt as a refugee for a while. It gets dangerous. He's involved in a, uh, rescuing his cousin Lot. There's a bit of a war that goes on in chapter 14. There's a number of things that happen in his life until you get to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we've already just we flicked through this guy's face. This fellow here, R.C. Sproul, some of you will know of this guy. Another pres- this is a good day for the Presbyterians. He, he's, he's dead now, so he's, he's doing very well. Um, R.C. Sproul and his wife, Vesta. And um, I, I, he's a prolific writer. He's a very fine scholar, a very deep thinker, and uh, been a great blessing to many of us. I read a book by him many years ago, which is terrific and has really shaped my thinking. That's called If There Is a God, Why They're Atheists. So if you want to know the God's explanation for atheists, that's a good book to read, or you can just go straight to Romans 1 instead, which is where he takes us. But R.C. Sproul is a very profoundly read person. He talks about the fact that there was a period in America where Christians would ask you what your life verse is, particularly when he was signing a book. Um, He said there was a funny moment when his kid was asked, his little son was asked um, in Sunday school, "Who, who wrote the Bible? And he said, my dad. And the reason was that he'd seen his, his dad not only sign books that he'd written, but people would also sometimes bring their Bibles and ask him to sign it. So he assumed, well, you only signed books that you wrote. So my, my dad, and, and, um, but people would ask Sproul, could you also write down your life verse? And he would give a verse from this passage here we're going to look at, from uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. It is one wacky life verse. I'll read it to you. See if this would have been similar to the one you would have chosen. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier, is that how you say that word? Brazier, I've got to get that word right. A smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Oh, that's inspiring, isn't it? When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier. 
<laughs> One of those things, whatever. It's a jarry thing that they put fire in and they cook things on the outside. I'm never going to get it right now. And a, and a fiery torch passed through the pieces. But I, brothers, I want to suggest to you that by the end of our few minutes together, I really hope you can see, even if you don't choose it as yours, why? If you understand what's happening, it is the most wonderful verse. And it's weird. Uh, I hope you... Well, let's see if God will help us to get its wonder and its weirdness. So let's, let's have a look firstly at the minor part of this relationship with God, the major part, and then the main point for us today. Firstly, the minor part. The minor part is, is chapter 12. It's very important, but it's not a covenant. Remember, covenant is a distinctive thing. It is a promise, and there are promises in covenants, but not every promise is a covenant. It's a bit like not every promise in our culture is a contract. Something more serious happens when you get a contract and you get lawyers and witnesses and you sign your name on the bottom of it. Things, you know, really, life is completely different in some situations once you've signed the contract. Hopefully you don't have too much regret after you've done it. And a covenant is the equivalent of a contract. It's a solemnly sealed promise. But here are the promises where God says to this nobody, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. You will be a blessing and you'll be a source of blessing to the whole earth. God chooses to reverse the effects of sin and the curse, which have got worse and worse and worse up to the end of chapter 11, through one man and through his wife and through his family, this guy, Abraham, or Abram as he was known first, then God renamed him later on. You can read that in chapter 17. But God initiates the relationship, as it, as it is in all true relationships. It's God who really gets it going. And he makes all these promises. Then, for clarity's sake, a little bit later in chapter 12, verse 7, he summarises the key parts for Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram, this is the second time later on, and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he's arrived in Canaan, the promised land, Palestine, whatever, that, that sort of bit of land near Lebanon. He's there, and God says, and now he actually tells him, okay, this is the place we were going to. To your offspring, I will give this land. They're the two parts of the promise. And that all needs to happen so it can flow to blessing to the whole world. So God summarises it. And we looked last week at the, very, the great importance of promises, God's promises. So at baptism... People are asked, are you yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? An obvious question to ask. Therefore, are you a member of his church? And the third one is the one I suggested we probably none of us would have put there. The third one says, sincerely believing the promises of God. And I asked you last week to work out what is your favourite promise of God. And if you're not aware of any promises, start getting aware of them. The thought that God Almighty should bind himself by promise to little people like us. And we don't even care enough to, to notice. I think that will betray to us something of our hearts if we aren't saying, really? God makes promises to us? Are you kidding? That's very precious. And that's where he starts, with Abraham making promises. And remember, we looked last week at the fact that God bothers to make and cares to keep his promises. He does not forget them. Well, next, the major part of this covenant with Abraham, it comes to us in chapter 15. 
And this is, this is a great chapter which will get us to that strange uh, verse that uh, Sproul was so keen on. Chapter 15 of Genesis, the one that you saw acted out. This is where God makes the covenant with Abraham. Or the, verse, or the word literally, as it says in chapter um, 15, verse 18, when it says the Lord makes a covenant, that's how it's translated in English, which makes sense. Literally and importantly, it says the Lord cuts a covenant. And when God makes a covenant with that, he cuts it. And you'll see the significance of the cutting here, and that, the use of that word. In Genesis 15, it falls into two very clear sections, verses 1 to 6 and verses 7 to 20, and they revolve around these two promises, offspring, land. That's what they revolve around. And God turns up, it's probably about a dozen years after they first met, when God first spoke to him in chapter 12. We don't know exactly. We do know exactly when uh, chapter 17 starts, which sort of rolls on from chapter 15, where we're told at that stage he's 99, so it's 24 years after the promise. Judging from the stuff that goes before it, it's a, most scholars think it's a good 10, 15, maybe even 20 years uh, from when God first made the promise. Remember, he made a promise to a man who was how old? 75. How many children did he have? None. His wife was 65. How many children did she have? None. She was physically, for some reason, unable to have children. Right. And God says... Whole nation going to come from you guys. God turns up in chapter 15, verse 1. In, uh, this is one of the most... I've been sort of feeding on this word uh, much of this week. Chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Uh, you, we know him as Abraham because God changes his name in chapter 17. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and I am your exceeding reward, or your very great reward. It's beautiful, isn't it? God saying, don't be afraid. Whatever you do, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. That's a pretty damn good shield, isn't it? If you're trying to harm me and God is standing between you, know, you and me, I ain't frightened of you, sucker. Right? That's a very good shield. And he is my exceeding reward. That he is able... So he's not saying, I'll give you gifts and presents that come and go. I am your exceeding reward. That's the essence of the joy of heaven, isn't it? To actually be with him and to know him deeply and ongoingly. So it's a beautiful introduction God gives, isn't it? And then he gets this really strange response from Abram, the man of faith. Verse 2. But, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Now, exactly how bitter you feel that Abraham is, well, I suppose you could argue it, but there's a level of God saying, I'm looking after you, this covenant thing. And Abram goes, really? Really? You made some promises. It was very unlikely. It was very hard to believe when you first made them. And what have you done since then in answering this very serious problem we have? Very serious problem you have, because you made some promises. And he speaks about the fact that he has organised, as you could in those days, Eliezer of Damascus, presumably a, a friend or perhaps a servant, to be his heir. Because God has said, you're offspring, but there ain't none. So Abraham, 
I think we would say he's doubting, wouldn't we? I think this is what doubt is. I think I've argued at, Chris, at uh, Easter that Thomas isn't so much doubting, he's going, no. I don't think Abram's doing that. And Jesus convinces Thomas. Here I think Abraham is going, oh, help me. You know, what are you going to give me when you haven't given me the basics? So this is not just a guy who wanted to be able to celebrate Father's Day, uh, although he did. This is a guy who has promises from God that he has completely ripped his life apart to act on the basis of. He's left everything. Look at what God says his response. How dare you doubt my word, you little scumbag. That's in the Hebrew. No, no, because some of us have gone to churches or think that as a Christian you're not allowed to doubt that God will slap you around. Now, I don't think it's to be encouraged, but it's, it's kind of normal. It's what, it's what we do. Look at what God says to him. The, the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So it's, it's worth noting, friends, that God does not rouse on him. But he simply restates and makes larger. It's one thing to be told you'll have offspring. It's one thing to be told it'll be a great nation that comes from you. It's a completely other thing to look at the Milky Way in the middle of the desert and say, count them, buddy. Right? And I don't think that means that if you can count how many stars he saw, you'll know exactly how many you know, children of Abraham. It's just saying it's vast. Right? You don't need to be dumb and literal at that point. But so firstly, God just... just takes him in hand and gently says, look, I've not forgotten. It will be one of your, from your own body and it'll be vast. And Abraham finds that enough and he's convinced. He believes what God says. He trusts in the words of God that he thinks that God is going to keep his promise. Then he moves on to the second part. It's offspring and land. <laughs> so what does God say next? Okay, we dealt with that one. Verse 6, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's down in Iraq. Who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You know we dug the city of Ur up, etc. Um, it was a great city in its day. Um, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land that you're standing on, to take possession of it. So he reminds him of the second part of the immediate promises and look at Abram's response. It's so, it's so us... But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, that's a big, respectful title. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Sovereign Lord, how can I know? I hear the promise. I've been thinking about it for decades. But how can I know? How can I be sure? Is he doubting himself? Maybe he is. He's seen his doubts, so he thinks, well, maybe God's going to find someone else for this. I don't know. Or is he doubting God? Either way, just say, how can I know? And I would imagine you've had those times with God where you'd like to know. Right? Am I really and truly one of his children? Right? We're all such rat bags. I mean, you all look so nice. But I, but I look nice. 
But I know what a jerk I am. I know what a repeat offender I am, as I've said to you, and what a, what a, poor, what a poor return God has got for the expenditure on me in the last you know, 40, 50 years or so. I, 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 much, 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 I should be a lot more godly and loving and kind and generous and all those things. How can I know? How can I be sure? I don't want to be self-deceived. This is a second type of doubt that we have here from the man of faith. Because if, if, you know, if you're asked, you know, please go to such and such a place and give us a talk on a man of faith. And you go to the Bible, Abraham's almost certainly the guy you go to, isn't he? Uh, Hebrews does in chapter 11 and chapter 6. Paul does in Romans 4. He's the great man of faith. And look at him here, staggering and doubting. So he says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain such a possession? So this is, isn't this the most comforting answer you're ever going to hear? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, some sort of a cow. Okay. Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, that is at their peak, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Oh, good, this is answering the question. Right. Now, for us, if that was what God said to you next time you were asking him, please assure me that I'm, I'm really yours and that I've been born of the Spirit, etc. And God says, go and get me a three-year-old cow and a three-year-old goat and a three-year-old thing and a couple of birds. Did you hear what I said? But for Abraham, it makes absolutely good sense. He knows what's going on. He doesn't have the faintest clue what's going to happen. Because what's going to happen has no, there's nothing like this anywhere in the world, either in theory or in the covenant making. Because we have lots of records from covenants from all around where Abraham lived. It was a very common thing that people made covenants. Abraham makes a couple of covenants, if you read through his life story, with other human beings. He makes a solemn arrangement that they know who owns what, who owns which wells, etc., but he knows because he knows this is the basis of a covenant ceremony. Uh, because what you do is, as you saw, you cut up some animals and you walk between them. And you make your promise and your vow to each other in the covenant. And what you're saying is, may I be like these dead animals if I don't keep my promise, if I break the covenant. It's very solemn. They didn't have lawyers and contracts and pens. They did it differently. But it was, it was acted out in a very, very powerful and memorable way, these covenants. And that's what God does here. Abraham, this would have taken in the next day, I presume, in verse 10, Abram brought all of these to God, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other with an aisle down the middle. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abram drove them away. So... He's setting it up for a covenant where you kill the dead animals and you walk through them. Now, let me just... Um, just to give you an idea of how common this is, this is the book of Jeremiah. There are other verses like this. But this is the, perhaps the best. God speaking through Jeremiah to his people who've completely ripped the covenant apart at this point. There's the covenant of Abraham, which leads to the Mount Sinai Moses covenant with the Ten Commandments, which leads to the promises to King David, and all of it leads to Jesus and to today. But here is when things have got... And this, the covenant with Moses is different. With the covenant, they both agree. It's much more like a marriage service. They both commit to each other, and there are promises and curses. God, speaking through Jeremiah, says this, Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant made before me... Right, it's a contract. I'll do this, you do this. 
I will treat like the calf they cut in two, then walked between its pieces. See what he's referring to? That if you, those who violated the covenant, will be, that's what the covenant's about. You will be treated like the calf that was cut in two and you walked between. Right, so it's a very solemn way to make a promise. Now, when Alison was at SMBC Bible College, which is where uh, Chris went, um, she had a lecture once on, on Genesis and Genesis 15, and she got very excited by it because he was explaining this, you know, that you walk through the covenant, you, the, the pieces, and you make the vow. And he said, marriage is a covenant, isn't it? That's why I've got this ring that uh, Sarah Lubbock made. It's Alison's. That's why it only fits on my little finger here. And it's got written on one side, covenant, and on the other side, the Hebrew word, berit which is the word for covenant, because marriage is a covenant. That's how she understands it. So she said, apparently, to the lecturer, you could, that'd be great, wouldn't it, to do at a wedding, sort of, you know. And the, preachers, the uh, lecturer said, no, well, you could perhaps preach on it. That might be a better idea. And it just turned out the mate of ours who we asked to preach at our wedding, um, dairy farmer, um, computer engineer guy, Jeff was talking to us about a speech he'd given once at his brother's wedding, not in the wedding service, but at the, at the sort of the celebrations, because you can say sensible things at the celebrations as well. And, and he said he spoke about Genesis 15, about it's a covenant. He said, I'm not sure if my brother realised the seriousness of what he's just done. He talked about how serious covenants and promises are as far as God is concerned with that whole covenant ceremony. So, so we just thought, let's do it. So since Jeff was speaking, so he, we, we did a little covenant thing. We didn't get dead animals in church. We got her nieces and nephews to act it out. But they're not dead, you'll be glad to know. People are apparently concerned, the constant question about kilts. Did I have something under my... Yes, I did have something on under my kilt because we were sort of stepping around these little kids. And we had a big knife each in our hand and we had a coat on our arm because, as Jeff explained, sometimes when you make a covenant between two equals, which is what marriage is, they would sometimes have a sword and it would say, I will be your defender. And they would sometimes have a warm cloak around the arm and I will keep you warm if you're cold. Things to say, this is what it's about. So we did this little covenant thing. There's the black and white, just to see it's real. And we, we were actually going to ask, Alison asked just the two oldest of her nieces, but then all of them wanted to be. So we had about a dozen of them out there walking our way through, trying to not, not drop the big knife on them. But um, just because this is what a covenant is. So a marriage promise is not like any other promise you make. It's much more serious uh, than, say, mortgages or something like that. Um, but that's what's going on here with God. But here's where it gets weird. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. We might get to the... There's another time when the Bible speaks about a thick darkness coming when you wouldn't expect it to. But here's a dreadful darkness. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years you're descendants. Then he outlines what's going to happen to his descendants before they get back and, and fully take hold of the land. Then in verse 17 is the great shocker. R.C. Sproul's verse. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking... Brazier, brazier, brazier. A smoking brazier and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The smoking pot and the torch. This is the constant symbols of the presence of God is in the book of Exodus. 
When God comes down on Mount Sinai to make the covenant, it's smoke and fire and lightning. When they're walking through the desert, it's the pillar of smoke by day and fire. This is the, the constant symbols that the Bible will use of the greatness and the um, terrifying greatness of God, not to be taken lightly. So you see what's happening. You see why this is such a wonderful thing. It's what, what God is saying is this. Let's, let's make this covenant definite. You're not sure if this is going to happen. Right, let's set it up for a covenant. I will walk through it. God is saying, may I be like these dead animals if I don't keep the promise to you. May I be de-godded. May God die if the promise isn't kept. He doesn't ask uh, Abraham to do it and say, I'll keep my side too, because he knows he won't. Abraham's as dodgy as you are. And as I am, we make our promises and we mean them, but then within sometimes a very short time, we find ourselves not loving as Jesus loved us, not being generous as God has been generous to us, and we, we fail. So God is saying, I'm not interested in your, your promise at this point, you weak little thing. I will make the vow and I will symbolically walk between it with the fire and the cloud. It's, there's nothing like this where God says, leave it to me. I will do it. I will save you. I will bless you. I will give you a wonderful future. Leave it to me. Trust me. Depend on me. This is what he's saying. So, so, so Abraham says, how can I know? This is how you can know. God has said, I will do it. And the other great time of darkness is in Mark 15. In the middle of the day, it goes dark for three hours as the Son of God is dying. And when he's finished dying for us, he says, it's finished. I've done it. And what this, is, this is the peculiarity of Christianity, and I hope you see it, because if you don't see this, you probably haven't seen anything yet. Christianity is all about what God does. It's all about his work for us, not our partnership with him. We're so weak and yet so loved that he says, Abraham, I'll show you. And in the end, it does cost him his life. In the end, God the Son does die to deal with our failure on our side of the covenant. It's absolutely wonderful and it's absolutely weird in a, in a God-type way. God is cutting the covenant as he says, two verses, or the next verse, verse 18, on that day the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants I give this land. God repeats his statement. And this is what God does. And he's keeping his promise to Abraham. You may never have thought of it. Many of the blessings we get in our life will come because God is keeping his promise to Abraham to make him a source of blessing to all people, that those who bless him and speak well of him, God will bless and protect. This is the, ma the major part of the covenant. This is the making of the covenant. He'll restate it in chapter 17. Mary refers back to it when she sings the Magnificat. Zechariah refers back to the blessings of Abraham when he sings his song. Just, just, we will get to this, but just let me take you to the very first verse in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Because right, God, we're going to look at this in two weeks. God makes an extraordinary promise to David, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus comes. At one level, because God gave his word to Abraham. This is how he's going to bless all nations, even Australia, is through the people 
who are like Abraham, that they believe what God says. They trust in the voice and the words of God. It's picked up all the way through the New Testament. Romans 4, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 6, James 2. This great promise that God makes. So the minor promise, or the minor part of the covenant, is just the straight promises in chapter 12. The major part is when God actually does the covenant ceremony. And lastly, more briefly, the minor part. Um, Sorry, the main, the, the main message for us, I guess. Let me take you to the well-known verses in uh, Genesis 15, verse 6. God says, it'll be your own kids. Chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, it's not like this. I think this is what we think it's like. I found this silly ad. Right? Believe in God and you'll find peace. That is not what the Bible's saying. You will have had this, where religion will come up, the fact that something, and someone will say, oh, I believe in God. It's not saying that. It's not do you believe that God exists. Even if you say you don't, you do. Right? We're just playing a game. But it's believing God. See, it's not saying Abraham believed in God. It's saying Abraham believed God. It said he trusted the words of God. Right? There was a work of art, well there was a big fight actually in Sydney a couple of decades ago about whether it was art I don't know if it was or it wasn't but it was just basically a big sign that says God said it, I believe it, that settles it just, I mean, it didn't seem to me to be art but some people that, that some people thought it was, some people thought it wasn't but it's great truth, God says it you will have many kids I will give you the land I believe it that settles it well that's probably better to say God says it I believe him. That settles it. We are those who say that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who sent his son as he promised, the God who sent the one, as he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would crush the head of the serpent and it would bruise his heel. Right in the very beginning, there's this weird promise about someone coming who will reverse it. And we see it's exactly what God does. He sends his son as the suffering servant. We can trust that God. That when he speaks, he doesn't lie. I remember... A friend of mine, Simon, bought one of those rubber duckies and they were called, had a little outboard motor and it was a little rubber thing. And I, at that point, had never been much out of the eastern suburbs of Sydney. There's plenty to do there. And um, he took us across the harbour and dropped me off at a little beach somewhere on the northern side. I don't know where, middle head, I don't know. But I just remember looking and I thought, oh, I've got no idea where I am here. So I said, just sit here and spend a few minutes praying. He was sort of trying to help me grow up as a Christian. But I remember thinking, I hope he comes back. Because, I, I mean, I didn't think I was going to die, but I had no idea where I was or how to get back from it. But then I thought, I have not the slightest doubt that Simon will come back. Except, you know, two-stroke motors, who knows? But, you know, because I had no reason... He's not a liar. He's not going to dump me there and leave me there to starve to death, right? And if, if I can do that with Simon Manchester, he's as dodgy as I am, the question is with God, when he makes, and this is an outrageous promise, later on in chapter 17, Abraham laughs. Because, you know, in chapter 16, he tries to help God by, you know, he has sex with his wife's servant, Hagar, because that was, he could do that, and she does get pregnant. And God says, no, no, it's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to be through Sarah. He says, I'm nearly 100. She's 90. She ain't going to the maternity ward, right, except to visit someone, perhaps. And he laughs. Sarah, when she hears it, she laughs. 
And in the end, they do laugh in a different way, not laughing at the absurdity of what God has said, but they laugh with joy, and that's what Isaac means. It means laughter. And it goes from being a sort of a cynical, unbelieving laughter to a deep, oh, isn't that wonderful that God should do that? It's, It's no crazier than God saying, you are righteous in my sight because of Jesus. If you think it was easy for Abraham to believe, and you know it wasn't, is it easy to believe that you're an adopted child of God, that God could care less what sins you did this morning or that horrendous sin that you can hardly forget that you did decades ago? He couldn't care less. It's been paid for. You are righteous in his sight. And the question is, like Abraham, do you believe what God says? Why wouldn't you? If you struggle with it, do what Abraham does not go to God and say, how can I know? Don't hide your fears and your doubts, but be honest and straightforward with them. So I think R.C. Sproul is right. You know, just to, um, where is it? There he is, R.C., he's dead now. Um, Chapter 15, verse 17 of Genesis is a great life verse. Because what it says is, it's God who does it. It's God alone who does it. He will keep the covenant, even if it kills him, which it does. But because of who he is and how he did it, he rises from the dead. His promises, he bothers to make them, and he will always keep them. That's supposed to be a relief to Abraham and to us. There's someone you can really trust. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you did come, at least at one level, to keep the promise your father made to Abraham. Thank you that you did take full responsibility for the covenant and you died as those animals did to deal with the breaking of the covenant that we so often do. Help us, Lord, to be honest with you in our fears and our doubts and our uncertainties uh, and that you would assure us that you always keep your promises, promises of grace and mercy. Uh, So, Lord, thank you for your dealing with Abraham and for your keeping of the covenant with him. In Jesus' name, amen.